there are times when I encounter people of faith who say things to me or in my presence that discourage me. I read online this week of a professor at a Christian college who put on his Facebook page, many evangelical Christians really don't seem to pay much attention to the teaching of Jesus. And I thought, oh, if that's true, how depressing. I worshiped in a church for a while where one of the board members used to say famously, well, you know, church is church and business is business. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? Does that mean the ethics and the morality you learn in church don't apply in business? Or does that mean make as much money off your Christian friends as you can? Or what does that mean? Are there really parts of our life that are sacred and parts of our life that are secular? I tend to think like it's all sacred. It's all God's truth. It's all God's grace. It's all God's compassion. God's presence is everywhere. I don't think you can separate any pieces of it out very easily. And so I didn't understand that. This morning, the passage we're taking up is Ruth chapter 4. And the message of the book of Ruth is very pointed and very specific. And my fear is that some Christians won't be able to see it past their already firmly entrenched political views. There's a difference between the application of practical politics and understanding the general Christian principles that must apply. But that doesn't mean we don't attempt to apply our Christian principles to our politics, right? Because it's all sacred. It's all sacred. It's all God's creation. It's all God's people cares about all of them. That has to be who we are. This is Ruth 4, verse 9. You're probably catching this is the third sermon in the series. Ruth 4, 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malan, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
When they came together, the Lord made her conceive and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. And as I've read and reread this book, I asked this question, why is the story of Ruth included in our Bible? There's no question that the headline is the faithful love that Ruth shows Naomi, that Hebrew word chesed. There's no question that this theme of faithful, responsible love is amplified by the faithful, responsible commitment of Boaz to Ruth. This further deepening of love serves as a model of who we ought to be and of the love that God has for us. But there's a third theme here that matters. Ruth is written, if you go back to the beginning of the book, to fit in right after the judges. You know, we have the history of the judges. Ruth begins in the time after the judges. It's, it's written to fit right in here. And one of the central issues of that period of time is the issue of Ezra and Nehemiah's difficulty in the return from the exile. As you know, a little later in the history, after the kings, Israel goes into exile. When they come back, they find that the Israeli people who stayed in the land had begun to intermarry with folks from the land. And those intermarriages led to the bringing of the idols of the foreign nations into the worship of Israel. And it's clear from the narratives of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that it is this intermarriage and the introduction of foreign gods and idols that's undermining the reconstruction of the nation. And so the prophets and leaders of that day required the bad influences, all the spouses from other nations and their idols to be cast out of Israel. It's a really difficult chapter to read. It causes great hardship among the people. If you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, understand how difficult that situation is. But now comes along the book of Ruth, equally inspired, we believe, and the opinions that are expressed here are different from Nehemiah and Ezra in some striking ways. Consider these things. Though the main character of the book of Ruth is the story of Naomi, one of the main heroes of the book is Ruth, who is the example of faithful love, a model for Israel and for us. But Ruth is no Jew. That was clear. And the author makes it clear by emphasizing every time he mentions the name of Ruth that she's from Moab, she's a Moabite. Ruth is from Moab, and it's a hated enemy nation that served different gods. 
But we're told, even as she's walking down the road to return to Israel with Naomi, that Ruth embraces Yahweh, which is the Hebrew God, not the name for the Moab God. So Ruth has embracing Yahweh on her way back in. Ruth is therefore favored. The love she demonstrates toward Naomi is an example of the faithful love of God. Everyone sees it. Everyone notices, the scripture says. Naomi blesses God for Ruth, for her faithfulness, for her compassion, for her loyalty, for her industry. And as the story unfolds, as we've heard, Boaz marries Ruth without hesitation, without reservation, without question, which... Given the message of Ezra and Nehemiah, is surprising. It's surprising. But everybody knows, everyone in the community knows, that Ruth's reputation is sterling, that her devotion to Naomi is exemplary, that her industry is impeccable. And so, no one reading the story would disbelieve what's happened or challenge anything that happened except for maybe Ezra and Nehemiah, because they want all the foreign women removed. And here we have this inspired word of God making the foreign woman the example. To, to be fair, we don't know exactly when Ruth was added to the Hebrew scriptures, but it feels to me like maybe Ruth is a little later addition with a deeper way to understand what God is saying to Israel. Because it's clear that God is saying through the life of Ruth, anyone can be a child of the kingdom of God. That race, ethnicity, gender, none of those things matter. None of those things are disqualifiers when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. In fact, when you hear the story of Ruth, I won't blame you if you think immediately of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? You remember that story. Guy gets beat up on the side of the road. People walk by and various folks choose or choose not to assist him. And the ones who choose not to assist him are the good Jewish neighbors. And the one who does assist the guy who needs help is a Samaritan, an outsider. The one against whom all the Jews have prejudice and the Samaritan becomes the example of the faithful love of God. So when he, he, Jesus, has asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus answers the question by saying, who in my story was a neighbor? It was the Samaritan, the outsider, the outsider who does what the children of God ought to do. And in this story... Ruth, the foreigner, the girl from Moab, is the example of the faithful love of God. You can see the twist, right? Ezra and Nehemiah just want to send all the foreign wives away. God, through Ruth, says, hold on a second. It is who they worship that matters. It's who they worship that matters. We're already told in the opening chapters of Ruth that Ruth invites Yahweh, the Hebrew God, to spread his wings over her. 
She's embraced the God of Naomi, the God of Israel. She and Boaz, both faithful and righteous, will, through their union, model the love of God for his family. You say, Pastor Dan, why do you suspect all of this? Why do you read all of this into the story? Well, I do it for a couple of reasons. The first is in chapter 4, verse 17, if you read what the ladies of the town say about Naomi after Ruth as a child, notice they say, they don't say, oh, look, Ruth has a son. They say, oh, look, Naomi has a son. Naomi's the grandmother, by the way. Naomi has a son? Well, what, what are they saying about that? What does that mean? By proclaiming that Naomi has a son, they're saying, this is the definition of restoration. Not only does God through Boaz provide for Naomi and Ruth, but he restores the fortune of the line of Elimelech. The idea that Naomi has a child means her family has been restored. Her family has been redeemed. What was lost has been redeemed. Things have been fixed. Things have been made right because of the faithful love of Ruth and Boaz. And there's a second reason. When we scroll to the end of the story, we get a genealogy. You understand genealogies. Those are the part of the gospel, beginning of Matthew, that we love to skip. Because how many begats or begots can you read in a row before you fall asleep? But they are hugely important to the Jewish mind. They establish context. They establish historicity. They establish lineage, which means ancestral rights to land. There's all kinds of pieces, reasons that genealogy matters. I won't go into all of that, but I'll say this. When the story ends with Obed, father of Jesse, father of David, that's like saying everybody in the story has been elevated to best citizen of the year status, right? This story is the ancestral story of the greatest king we had, the king who had a heart for God. And so this is, it's no surprise that we have David because in his ancestral line we have Ruth and Boaz. And so these folks are elevated to this high pinnacle of, of being examples for all of Israel and for us. And they named him Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. This story tells us what it means to love. For to love is to redeem. You might not just think of the story of the Good Samaritan. You might also jump to the story of Peter and Cornelius rather quickly, right? I mean, Peter's on the roof of the house praying. He sees a vision. The sheet gets let down. All these unclean animals are in it. And Peter hears the voice, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I don't eat pig. I don't eat anything that's unclean. I never have. I never will. And the voice comes back to Peter. Peter, don't declare unclean what I have declared clean. Okay? 
We've read the Old Testament story. We remember when God declared those things unclean. But there's a transcendent meaning in the vision, right? And in the story, we see Peter sent to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius has prayed in advance and has seen Peter coming. And together, Peter preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. And it becomes clear to Peter that this good news of Jesus Christ is not just for the Jews, but it is for the Gentile world as well. It is for everyone on the planet. And Peter in Acts 10.34 says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Can you hear Peter? Peter's words judge the arrogance of nations or races or any other artificial subdivision. You may know that Jewish men were required to pray three times a day. And part of the prescribed prayer was, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Jewish commentators say that this blessing is hard for modern minds to understand. It's hard for my mind to understand, but it's, this is the explanation that we get for this. That the requirements for the law are most stringent and most aggressive for men. And so this prayer means that I am blessed to be required to the highest pinnacle of acceptance of the law of God. Whether most Jewish men mean this when they pray, I wonder. But I think, I think that when Paul writes to the Galatian church, he has this prayer in mind. Because he says these things in the exact order of the Jewish three times a day men's prayer, by the way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Artificial divisions created among people kill us. And we are experts at creating artificial divisions. Prejudice must be fought on every level. If your understanding of history is broad enough, you will see all the different examples of where artificial barriers are created. Did you know that there's actually a prejudice between Georgia and Alabama? That people in Georgia just generally think that people in Alabama are slow and stupid. You say, that's ridiculous. Well, I, I don't know. I moved from Pennsylvania, went to school in Boston, ended up in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And it took me a while to remember or to understand 
that everybody in the South wasn't slow and stupid? Because you know what we've been taught as north of the Mason-Dixon line people, right? And these subtle prejudices just have a way of, of weaving themselves into our humanity. And we'll not really fight against them because they make us feel a little better about ourselves because we're not like them. And we create all these us and them stuff that kills. It separates people from the potential gospel influence in our lives. Our role as children of the king is to build bridges, to be about the work of redeeming everything that has been lost. This story should impact our immigration politics, our compassionate ministry agenda, our outreach policy. This story should help us see the mission of Christ, that he is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone should inherit eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the summary of this? We see the example of faithful love as expressed from Ruth to Naomi. We see the example of faithful love, the love that redeems and restores in Boaz to Ruth and her family. We see the example of God who redeems and restores everything for Naomi so that the family is restored. We know the example of Jesus Christ to us who is expressing his faithful love to us from generation to generation as we read in the opening psalm this morning. And so for us, the invitation is to demonstrate the faithful love of God to others, to everyone, knowing that we are all the object of his love. Aaron, if you'd come. One of my favorite musicals is the musical Fiddler on the Roof. And one of my favorite songs, though I love most of them, is the Sabbath prayer they sing around dinner. And one of my favorite lines is when they're singing about all their daughters gathered around the table and blessing their daughters, they sing, may you be like Ruth and like Esther. May you be deserving of praise. I've thought about that this week. May we be like Ruth. People whose faithful love reaches out to restore and redeem what is lost around us. And may we be deserving of praise. I'm not asking that you be famous, because fame seems to mess most people up. But be deserving of praise means you actually made it all the way to exemplifying the faithful love that God desires you to demonstrate to those who he loves. Will we embrace and exemplify the faithful love of the God who is seeking to redeem and restore all that's been lost. Is that your desire?
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of the expression of faithful, redeeming love. And we pray, gracious Lord, that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we will have adequate love to appropriately love those around us. We pray that your Spirit would check the rising frustration that is in us when we are irritated by those who are around us. And remind us again and again that every person with whom we deal is a person you love. And every time we try to create an us and them, that your love resides equally with them and with us. Teach us your faithful love. We've received it from you. Now by your spirit, enable us to share it with others, we pray. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the times we have not done this, for the times we have created artificial divisions, for the times that we have felt superior to others. Forgive us, Lord. And help us again humbly to understand the depth of your love for Nineveh and all the others from whom we've separated ourselves. Father, if we're to achieve this, it will be your work because we do not find in ourselves resident the kind of love necessary to emulate your love. We're, we're going to need your help. We're going to need your spirit so to fill us that we have resources of love adequate to the challenges because only love will bridge the divides in our culture. Only love will renew our civil discourse. Only love will enable us to be the examples of holiness that you invite us to be. And so we say, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Breathe new life into these souls of ours that we may love the way you love. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, God who first loved us. Amen. And now may the Spirit of Christ so fill your hearts with his love that it will naturally overflow to all that you meet. To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.